Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, we'll be looking at the first five verses of this chapter that begins uh, really a, a chapter that the, the overall focus of it is a lengthy prayer. Um, so we'll just be looking at the preparation for that prayer, the opening of that prayer too, in verses 1 through 5. But authenticity has become all the buzz within the Christian community. It's reflected in our obsession with personality tests. And I also think sometimes an overemphasis on vulnerability. We're deeply interested in knowing and being our true selves. And so we even see it with those online quizzes that assign an animal or a fiction character based upon how you answer a few questions. We can get into like a little obsession with who, who, it, who it finds us to be. And I remember being surprised when my professor for practical ministry challenged the notion of uh, vulnerability and authenticity. And I thought to myself at first hearing it, you know, you're, you're probably just really bad at it. And so that's why you don't like it. Um, but he mentioned a few good reasons for his assessment and, and convinced me that at least I think he's partially right. Too much vulnerability may reveal how self-absorbed we've become. And uh, Christianity begins to serve as just a means by which we realize our authentic self. Right? Sort of just this, this crutch for us to get really to where we want to be, which is self-help. We want to understand ourselves better. I think there's a balance somewhere in the midst of the extremes. We shouldn't be closed off to isolate ourselves so that we, we lose honesty before God and others. We, we need to be honest about who we are, what we've done, certainly before God, but also before others. But we also shouldn't be so vulnerable that we replace this Christ-centered gospel with a self-centered person, right? A self-centered individual. Well, let's quickly review all that has taken place in our book. Uh, just from, the, from this chapter, this idea of the, the seventh month, the previous chapter, chapter eight, the, there was the beginning of the seventh month. On the first day, they, they gathered together and they celebrate this feast of trumpets. And they called upon Ezra, the scribe and the priest, to read to them from the book of the Law of Moses. And he did so for five to six hours while the people stood in rapt attention, listening, feeling convicted while they listened. They became so burdened by their sin that the spiritual leadership had to, in fact, exhort them to begin rejoicing, kind of comfort them so that they could prepare their hearts for a celebration that was to follow. And so on the second day, the heads of father's houses gathered together. They've, they've become so intrigued by God's word, so desirous to understand his will for their lives, that they gather together with Ezra, as, long as, uh, as well as the scribes and the priests, to read 
the book of the law of Moses and to study it together. And during that gathering, they realized that they needed to celebrate the Feast of Booths in two weeks. So they had time there to basically proclaim this feast that was going to take place in Jerusalem to get everyone ready and to go out and begin gathering branches to make their booths. So they, they do so. On the 15th day, they begin to celebrate this feast. And it says there was very great rejoicing as they have left their homes to live in booths. And there's very great rejoicing. We talked about that last time. They continued to hear during that week, during the, the, the Feast of Booths, they continued to hear the law read. Ezra apparently reading from the book of the law every day. And then on the 22nd day of the month, they concluded the feast with another solemn assembly. Now it's the 24th day, the beginning of chapter 9. It's the 24th day of the month, and they gather for a day of repentance. So you see this roller coaster of emotions, in a sense, that we all are familiar with, of rejoicing, of sitting under the preaching of the word and being convicted by it, and then being told to, to rejoice and to celebrate, to enter into that and, and to give themselves fully to it, and then to come back to a time of conviction, to come back to a time where they need to confess. It's important to recognize that this didn't develop out of thin air. Now, there was a growing sense of conviction throughout the month. The word of God already bore the fruit of repentance in their lives, but now they seek a, a formal time of corporate confession, gathering together to confess together. And so none of us enjoy this part, exposing our sin to others, but God has designed the process of sanctification to involve other believers. You can't do it isolated. You can't do it on your own. And corporate confession of sin should be an element of every worship service, as well as the practice of every believer. And so before we read, let's ask the Lord for his help and understanding. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for <clears throat> this passage that reminds us of our relationship to you as ones who, who owe obedience to you and as those who daily fail. Lord, help us to reflect upon these things as we gather each week and as we come together as a family, as the body of Christ. Lord, we want to confess together the ways in which we've fallen short of your glory. So it bring us the conviction that we need to experience this morning and the ways in which we might have neglected these things that we, we don't generally look forward to. And Lord, help us as well to be comforted by the truth of your gospel, that you would be glorified and magnified, that Christ would be lifted high, that we would once again be brought to the foot of the cross where we would experience that assurance of pardon. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. 
Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Canani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hash- Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first thing I want us to consider, you can follow along in your outline and enter this into the first blank, is how to prepare to confess sin with others. How to prepare to confess sin with others. Israel has, has just finished the second of two celebrations found in Leviticus 23. We've, we've talked about that the last few weeks. They sought to return to a more faithful practice of God's law, and as they heard the law read by Ezra, they were convicted of the ways in which they were neglecting components of those laws and aspects of the feast. And so they uh, celebrated them faithful. They, they wanted to honor him. And you'll search in vain throughout the entire Pentateuch for something scheduled on the 24th of the seventh month, the 24th day of the seventh month. In fact, the 24th day of any month, you won't find it in in a Pentateuch. So what took place in this chapter is not found in the law. In other words, the people have now gathered of their own accord not because they've been compelled by a command from God or some new insight that they have of ways in which they've fallen short. They simply now are feeling compelled to gather together for corporate confession of all the ways in which they've fallen short. And so they came prepared to confess their sin with what we see as a proper humiliation, and it's exemplified in three different ways. The first is they fast. You see this throughout Scripture, really, this idea of of not eating, not, part, not taking in food, not taking in any calories. Uh, they came on empty stomachs to this occasion. Every time they would have felt hunger pangs, they would have rem- it would have reminded them, right, that they were there for the confession of their sin. And having been maybe fattened up over the eight days of the previous feast, Uh, This is maybe not as grueling of a challenge as you might initially think, but that is typical of Israel. There was feasting and fasting regularly, feasting and fasting in a healthy way to honor and glorify God. And so they come fasting. They come recognizing the role that fasting plays in preparing them to confess their sins. Secondly, we read that they put on sackcloth. Now, this has to do with discomfort. Um, you might think of it like the, the, the 
idea that every time they, they had a desire to scratch from the itchy fabric that they would have uh, been reminded they were there to confess their sin. Once again, it keeps them focused upon God, upon the point of their gathering. And then thirdly, it says they had earth on their heads, their dirt. They put dirt upon their heads. I think another thing that's quite uncomfortable, right? every time they wanted to wash the dirt out, they would have been reminded that they were there to confess their sins. So in every way, they've prepared themselves, physically, emotionally, spiritually, for this day. And those last two ideas of sackcloth and putting dirt on your head is also associated with mourning. It's associated with you know, attending funerals or just mourning over the loss of a loved one. And it emphasizes the, the sorrowful component of repentance. Without sorrow, you really turn repentance into an emotionless endeavor, something that's not involving your whole person. Again, that's something of the balance we're talking about being necessary here. Now, we don't become so self-absorbed, but we, we can't be so absent-minded that we have no emotions. We're just going through the motions, as it were. And then we learn that they separated themselves from foreigners. What does this imply? The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. Well, God had separated Israel from the nations and called them to be holy, Leviticus 20, 26. But they had ignored this separation and they had partnered with neighbors in compromising ways. Some had married foreign wives or foreign husbands. Uh, some had partnered financially. Some had entered into relationships business-wise so that they could profit from idolatrous practices. And so they ignored this command to be separate, to be set apart, to be sanctified. And so the Israelites received foreigners within their covenant community. They did this in a way that honored God at times, you have an example of Rahab or Ruth. Uh, so th the idea was not that they, they just despised everyone not like them. Right? If you're not, in, you're not of Israel, then, then you're inferior and that you, you, know, you, you can't be here. The idea was you needed to adopt the religion of Israel if you're going to be a part of the community. And so they would have allowed them to come had they done that. And, and those that did were not required to be separated, right? When, when they separated themselves, they weren't separating themselves from people like Rahab and Ruth. They were joining in this confession. They had already adopted this community, right? Or, or they had been adopted into this community. But most foreigners, they had remained in their idolatry. And the Israelites were partnering with them and inviting that idolatry right alongside their temple worship. In fact, even bringing it into the temple at times. And so they had become idolatrous themselves. As you read in Ezra 6, 21, they recognized their own sin in this. Separation was necessary in those cases. And we see that same principle in the New Testament 
in 2 Corinthians 6 and in John 17. This was a, another way of preparing for corporate confession of sin. This idea that we are not to be unequally yoked with the world. And so preparing ourselves for conviction is not something we, we often think about. Rather than enter into church sober-minded, we want to get excited about worship. We want to tell our kids all the fun it's going to be. Right? And, and, and in fact, that's what they would have enjoyed during the Feast of Booths. They were celebrating. They were experiencing very great rejoicing. So it's not wrong to want that. But there's also a place here for sober-minded confession. That's also part of our worship. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we should routinely feel convicted by the preaching of the word, as the Israelites were on that first day. Conviction is something we should anticipate. And that means that part of the preparation we do before attending the worship service is to think about the conviction that we will experience, to anticipate it. Reflect upon the obvious and subtle ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe this morning, this past week. And so we might even consider fasting our breakfast or adopting a solemn posture of mourning over our sin, minus the sackcloth and dirt. If you come in sackcloth, I won't kick you out. But we might signify our, our separation from the world in the way that we prepare for church. Sunday mornings. Replace your 80s playlist staple with a collection of psalms and hymns. Do something different on Sundays than you do the rest of the week. To remind you that God has set you apart for him. So we do not prepare for confession in order to get God's attention. As if by doing these things that we're going to, God's going to, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to really work in this person's life today. They've, they've, they've shown me that they're worthy. No. It's not to purchase God's favor. The process of preparation helps us to engage our wayward hearts that are prone to wander. It's to focus our minds upon meeting with a perfectly holy God, and just to reflect upon his holiness is humbling and preparing our minds for worship. So that's not something we enter into with a flippant attitude, even on our own, even privately, to just flippantly open God's word and read it and sort of check it off and go on about your day. No, we humbly prepare to meet with him. We eagerly expect to be changed by the experience. And so Jesus prayed for his disciples, knowing that they would endure hatred from the world. He asked his father not to remove them from the world, but to keep them from the evil one in John 17. He recognizes that there is this separation that his, disciple, his disciples will experience from the world. Not only are they to separate themselves, but because of that, they will be hated by the world. They should be ready for that, and they should know that he is praying for them. That he interceded for them in the Mount of Olives before his own death, and he continues to intercede for you now as your great high priest. 
So he asks that they might be sanctified in the truth of God's word. Even as we prepare for confession of sin, we, we know that Jesus Christ has already prayed to preserve us. He's already promised to forgive us. And so we come in that sense of assurance. We apprehend the mercy of God that's held out to us even in our repentance. And so we transition here from preparing to actually practicing. And this is just the second half of verse 2. And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. All right. So having prepared themselves to repent, the people of Israel are now not only focusing on their own sin, but the sins of their fathers. We can all agree that it was appropriate for them to confess their own sin. We get that. They're responsible for that. They should confess that. But what about the sins of their fathers? That makes us a little uncomfortable. Why would they need to confess those two? How could they be held responsible for something they did not do? There's a lot of confusion about this nowadays. What does it mean to confess the sin of your fathers? Were they agreeing to take the punishment of their fathers upon themselves in doing so? Well, we need to recognize the covenant responsibilities that had been neglected by the Israelites for generations. They had returned to the land just within this past century, to the promised land. They had spent their time in exile, enduring punishment for the sin of their fathers. That's what led them there in the first place, into exile. And so they come back now, and they want to confess their sins that they themselves engaged in, as well as the sins of their fathers, so that they might begin to turn away from them. They might renounce those practices. See, the sins of the fathers often pass down to their children. Deuteronomy 5, 9 and 10. But ultimately, everyone is punished for their own sin, according to Deuteronomy 24, 16. So the sins of the fathers pass down to the children, oftentimes. But we're all responsible We all receive punishment for our own sin. And always the promise is held out to those who repent and turn away from their sin. They are promised life. Ezekiel 33. So when we've thought about the ways in which we've sinned, when we we think about the, the conviction that we experience, the last thing we want to do is tell someone else about it. But that doesn't mean that we should avoid the practice and just because it's uncomfortable. Maybe you're thinking, well, we're not Roman Catholic here. You're not the priest. You're not going to go sit behind a booth and I'm going to come and confess my sin to you. It wasn't until the Middle Ages that Pope Innocent III made it a requirement to confess your sins to a priest. 
And this led to, centuries later, the creation of a confessional box that hid priests behind a grill and curtain. And John Cornwell, a historian and Cambridge University fellow, argues that these practices are what led to the churches, or at least they contributed to the church's sexual abuse scandal. And in fact, I think he even argues that that's one of the reasons why the confessional box was created to begin with, was to create a separation between the, the confessor and the one hearing the confession so that there would be some safety. But in fact, it just exacerbated the problem. So while we can agree that the practice had become corrupted, this idea of confessing your sin to someone else other than God, again, that does not eliminate the command to do so. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Do you confess sin with others? Do you have accountability? Do you have a close friend who encourages you but is also willing to rebuke you? None of us have arrived at a place in our sanctification where we, can no, where we no longer need accountability. I just confess my sin to God and no one else. But in fact, I think this passage shows we need to go further than that. We need to go further than confessing our own sins to the sins that run deep in our family, in our community, in our nation. Have you confessed those sins to the Lord? Are you actively seeking to mortify those tendencies that you have inherited? Have you confessed the sins of your nation? Now, we need to acknowledge a difference here when I say something like that with a trend right now, right? I'm not suggesting that you need to join those who have their hands, their fist raised at every institution in America wanting to destroy it. That's not what I'm suggesting here. But there are crimes against humanity that have committed, been committed in our nation. And they're not unique to America, but they do represent our collective rebellion against the Lord. And so we should confess the past atrocities of the African slave trade without ignoring the present murder of unborn babies. Let us confess the pride of our public school system that has raised a generation of political and social activists who have more disdain for this country than gratitude. We should confess the perverted views of sexual identity and marriage that have marred the image of God and have misled millions of children. And we could go on, right? We confess these sins not because we are personally guilty in every instance, but because we collectively belong to a nation that celebrates what God calls evil. And as ourselves being set apart, we want to set ourselves apart from that sin. And call others to be set apart from it. To repent. I think ultimately we do this and we know the result of our confession will be an assurance of pardon. There's a, a compelling reason to come prepared to confess. Because the sense of assurance, the assurance of that pardon is, is partially fulfilled in the relief that we receive from being honest with God and others. 
read Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, that speaks about the anguish that we feel when we keep silent in our sin. And so God has already provided us with this promise of forgiveness. In fact, along with the, the promise of forgiveness, we have the assurance of reconciliation. We won't just be forgiven, but we will be brought back into a right standing, right? A right relationship with God. The gospel doesn't call us to perpetual wallowing in the mire of our wickedness. It calls us to walk by faith in light of the fact that God has made us a new creation. And so this last section shows us the need to join worship with confession together. It's where I get the idea that, that it's an element of the worship service even. It has to do with how, how to praise God and confess sin with others. And I don't know if I mentioned the second point, but it's how to practice confessing sin with others. So you have how to prepare, how to practice, and how to praise God. They all stood and they, they read from the Bible, from the book of the law, it says in verse 3. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord. Now, again, they would not have had their own personal copies, so they're sharing this scroll. They're passing it around, and they're all standing and reading and taking turns. They have become a people of the word. Every time they get together, they open God's word. They study it. They read it. They meditate upon it. Remember, day one, they've listened to Ezra for up to six hours. Day two, the heads of the father's houses studied with priests and Levites for we don't know how long. Maybe another couple of hours. Days 15 through 22, Ezra reads from the law each day. Again, we don't know how long, but he does so every day. And now they are all on day 24 reading from the law for three hours. Standing and listening. So after hearing from the law, they then spend the next three hours confessing and worshiping. So this was another six-hour worship service. And the next time I hear someone say, you went 15 minutes over, Brad, I'm going to respond, is that all? So apparently during this time, they, they have begun sitting or kneeling as they're confessing because, it, because they're encouraged to stand up in verse 5. So, so it's, there's, there's not this, um, you know, we don't know exactly how they were doing this, if they were all standing during the reading of the word or if the, just the person reading it was standing up. But throughout this time of worship and confession that followed the reading of God's word, they are now uh, probably in various postures of worship. Some kneeling, some bowing, some standing, some all praying. And it says in verse 4 that the Levites cried out with a loud voice. Now, this is not instruction directed toward the people, but it's praise to the Lord their God. And they've elevated their voices so that others can listen in, right, as they are giving proper praise to God. It's even exemplifying for them how they might do the same thing. It's maybe similar to uh, the pastoral prayer where one person is praying and everyone is, is praying in agreement with them. So they're learning how they might continue the practice on their own, and that's precisely what we see taking place in the next verse, in verse 5. 
Then the Levites, and all of the names, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. There's a, a, an encouragement there to join in what they are doing, to give praise to God. So a shift occurs at this gathering here. In the beginning, during the festivals, Ezra and the priests are ministering to the people. They're up front. Everyone's listening. If they're confused, they have Levites going around telling them, right, explaining it to them so that people understand. But now the people are ministering to one another. But the Levites are modeling how the people are to do it, how they might participate, but the whole community is involved in the act. I remember talking to, to friends one night in high school how, about how we were inclined to commune with God differently. I kind of, most of us enjoyed reading the Bible uh, more than praying. But one person said they could pray more easily. They were sort of the outlier. But none of us really had a balance that's conveyed in this passage. Notice there was three hours of listening to God's word, three hours of confession and praise. taking the time to respond to what they heard. If you're spending two minutes in prayer and 28 minutes reading, it might reveal an appreciation for the mind but a neglect of the heart. Likewise, the opposite reveals an overemphasis upon emotions right, without knowledge. So we need that balance of both. Confession of sin and worship go together. Confession is, is not a response to worship. It's an element of it. We neglect it to our own harm. So devote yourselves to reading and sitting under the preaching of the word, but try to spend an equal amount of time in prayer, confession, and praise. Maintain a, a proper balance between head, knowledge, and heart application. Study difficult doctrine, especially if you are the type of person who tends to avoid it. It's too hard for me. Then study it more. Engage your emotions and affections, especially if you tend to suppress them. Learn how to confess sin with others, especially in the context of worship. As we see in this passage because just as, as sin infects the whole man, so salvation affects the whole man. We don't, we don't want to become imbalanced in our worship, right? We become like the guy at the gym who skips leg day. Right? We're bulked up in the upper, our upper body, but we've got twigs for legs. We can do the same thing spiritually, right? We can avoid the aspects of our faith that challenge us or make us uncomfortable and just focus on the things that, that we enjoy. Now, rather, rather than obsessing over ourselves through personality profiles, we should seek to form the bonds of Christian unity with one another that we, that we trust will last for eternity. That means that if we trust one another, we can be honest with one another about our struggles, about our fears, about our frustrations. And we can take them to God together in prayer. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do hear our prayers. 
that we can come to you as children to a father knowing that you take care of us, that you hear us. We can cast our burdens upon you knowing that you care for us. Lord, we know that you not only bring that conviction of sin into our hearts, but you give us that assurance of pardon that we can enjoy worship. That we can leave here transformed and changed by the power of the gospel. Lord, we don't want to turn our worship of you into some obsession with ourselves, trying to figure out who we are, but Lord, we want to simply know you and respond rightly to your revelation. So Lord, help us to dig deep into your word, to understand how every passage of scripture points forward to Christ and his gospel the good news or that we have been united to him by faith. Lord, and, and then to respond with gratitude in that, that would compel us to come with confession, to be able to confess openly to others. Not that we would hang our dirty laundry for everyone to see, but Lord, that we would have a trusted companions with whom we share the struggles and challenges that we face. The sins that so easily ensnare us. Lord, forgive us for isolating ourselves or for neglecting that aspect of our sanctification. Help us to by your spirit, honor you moving forward, that we would even delight in that confession because we know what follows, which is that assurance of pardon and this promise, this hope that for all eternity we'll be united to Christ and his people worshiping and glorifying you. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, hymn number 514, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go.